crazy. Okay, uh, open your Bibles to Song of Solomon. Do y'all know where that is? Just go in the middle and kind of move to the left a little bit. Actually, to the right. Okay, uh, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to start today. We've got two options. This passage that we're going to look at is going to kind of highlight the two options that are before you today, and you didn't even know you had two options on how to read this book. So here you are. I want you to look at verse 13. This is in the passage that we're reading. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now here's option one. This option one is the interpretation of the early church by a guy named Cyril of Alexandria. This dominated for 1,500 years, this interpretation. Are you ready? The two breasts are the Old and New Testament. And my beloved is Jesus. And the meaning is that Jesus shows up between the Old and New Testament. Uh, this is the de-sexed option of reading Song of Solomon, just in case you were wondering. This is technically called the allegorical approach. What the allegorical approach does is it says the original historical meaning is not what's important. You need to find the spiritual meaning. And because you are astute Bible students, you're saying, well, how do you know what the spiritual meaning is? And that is a great question because you know because you know you fill it in yourself. So the allegorical approach is a subjective opinion, meaning the meaning can be and can go as far and as wide as your imagination. Now, there's another way to look at this. Well, I think we need to highlight this. There's a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. This enabled him, this de-sexed option of Song of Solomon, this enabled him to preach 86 sermons on chapters 1 and 2 alone to a bunch of celibate monks. Don't you feel sorry for those dudes? I mean, seriously, that must have been brutal. But, you hear, but because you're looking for a spiritual meaning, you're not dealing with the original historical meaning of the text, it's fascinating, though, that all these guys that did that had some like, kind of like weird obsession things with sex. Some of them emasculate themselves. I mean, just weird stuff. So all that to say, if you get too spiritual, you get really weird. Really weird. Option number two is the original historical meaning. The two breasts are two breasts. Uh, my beloved is the man she loves. The meaning is she wants him. She wants her man as close to her as possible all night long. Jewish rabbis interpreted it this way. During the Second Temple Age, this is the Greco-Roman Age, after the first temple was destroyed. They interpreted this way, and the reason why we know it, because they warned all the young men not to read it till they were 30. So, before we go one more step forward today, one more step into the heart of the Song of Songs, some of us still need to be released. Some of us still need to be unbound. Some of us still need to be unchained. You need to be set free. You need to be let go from a phony holiness. A phony holiness. A holiness that, let's put it this way, according to the Bible, true holiness is embracing the Song of Songs, embracing the original historical meaning of the Song of Songs. In other words, it's okay for you to like this. You're supposed to. It's what humanness is, or we could say holiness. 
So in one sense, we're all in a recovery group <laughs> for the Song of Songs. Personally, I can say this about the Song of Songs. It, is, um, it, has, it has surprised me, not for its obvious reasons. It surprised me. There's an, when I approached this book, there was an internal dialogue going on with me that went something like this. There's one part of me, this part over here is saying to me, saying, hey, man, you said you're committed to preaching the whole Bible, so you better not bail on this. Right? That was one part. But then the other part of me says, whoa, warning, hold on there, tiger, right? You do know that this book is going to reach damaged places in people's lives. You do know this book is going to get deeply personal because it's going to probe the foundational levels of things that are most essential and most important to us. Love, intimacy, relationships, your very identity, sex. You know, this person's still talking right now. You know, Jeff, it's going to hit hot topics both inside and outside the church. And you're going to be recorded. So this part of me was like, I'm like, whoa, I'm listening to this part of me. And this part of me is completely exasperated at me for doing this right now. And it's saying, Jeff, have you lost your mind? Are you an idiot? But we're three weeks in. I can't stop now. Three weeks in, and I can tell you, this book is stunning. This book is beautiful. I mean, if you were just to take the literary form of this book, it would take your breath away. It is so subtle. It is so vivid. It is so latent with powerful images that get beyond you really, really quick and impact you. Just the literary form is breathtaking. You could treat it as a literary document, and everyone over at Baylor or anywhere else, whether you're a believer or not, would be astounded at the song that it is. This is a song of songs. It's poetry that's off the charts. It's beautiful, but it's so beautiful, not just because of its literary form, but because it's so emotionally freeing. It's so relationally real. It's so intrusively intimate. It's so grippingly personal, and it's so transcendently active right now. And maybe ultimately, it's blatantly experiential. And you know what that means is that this, is that God has intended this particular part of Scripture, the purpose, the form itself. In other words, the water of the Word is carried in many buckets, Sometimes the bucket is a story bucket. Sometimes it's just a raw proposition, like you go to Romans. Propositions. Sometimes it's story with characters and plot line, narrative history. And sometimes it's poetry. And what the poetry is designed to do is do this. It's designed to have you feel it before you think it. God intends this book to cause you to feel your way into new thinking, feel your way into new relating, feel your way into new living. And I bet you didn't see that coming from this book, did you? So I want to welcome you to a book designed by God to emotionally move you back to life again. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engadai. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would cause us to experience you and your salvation with this text in such a way that our thinking is renewed, our relating is renewed, uh, our way of living is renewed and healed. So Holy Spirit, would you blow, would you work, would you act, would you move, would you bring us back to life again? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's the question. What's the opposite of intimacy? Just think about that really, really quick. What is the opposite of intimacy? You got it? Here's what it is. It is a soul, it's soul wrecking. It's relationship wrecking loneliness. The opposite of intimacy is soul wrecking loneliness, relationship wrecking loneliness. So when we feel lonely, we feel invisible. And this is invisible to your people, like to your spouse, your people, like to your children or the children to their parents or siblings, or to classmates, to teammates, to people in your running club or your climbing club or people at work. You feel invisible. You feel invisible to the barista at your favorite coffee shop. You feel invisible to yourself. You can't even see yourself. You're the invisible man. You're even invisible to your dog. That's how bad it is. When you're lonely, when we're lonely, we ache to connect to something. You ache to connect to anything. You ache to connect to a person, to an ideology, to an addictive substance, to a religion. We ache to connect to a feeling, to a material possession, to a body, a physical, sexual body. We ache to connect to something. When we're lonely, life is intolerable. It's unlivable. God says it this way, and he said it at the very beginning, and he said it when everything was perfect. He said it when the first man was perfect and was in a perfect relationship with him. It's absolutely shocking that God in paradise turns to the creation he just made, his prized creation, with all the angels watching. And he says to this man, it is not good for you to be alone. 
This is stunning. This means that in paradise, before the evil powers invaded the world, a human being was in a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with himself. Do you know what that means? Is that he had no psychological mental problems. He had an intact identity. He was an outward-looking being. He didn't even know what it was like to be curved in on himself and get swallowed up into himself and sucked down into himself. He was outward, perfect. And God says to him, it's not good for you to be alone. This is incredible. This means that what God is saying to you and me and to everyone, any human being, that holiness and humanity and being a human being is that you are not made to be alone. In other words, you are made for intimacy. Tim Kellner's latest book called Prayer, he says it this way, we know of no joy higher. There's no joy higher than being loved and loving in return. Intimacy. It's in your very DNA. You must have it. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. It drives everything we do. And yet, if the psychological statistics are correct, 9 out of 10 of us this morning are lonely. 9 out of 10 of us this morning find intimacy utterly elusive. Just can't grab it. Just can't get it. Just can't. <clears throat> so today, today we look at the mystery of intimacy. Isn't that fascinating? You know, last week the book starts with the mystery of desire. And now it moves into the mystery of intimacy. I wonder what next week will be. I don't know. So what is the mystery of intimacy? Look at verses 5 and 6. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. What she's doing right here, the woman, what she's doing, she's comparing herself to the young, rich, beautiful, wealthy city women, urban ladies of Jerusalem. What's happening here is that the sign or the marker of beauty, the, the way you determine what beauty was in those days is that you... You had pale skin. You weren't working in the sun. You were outside, inside doing your work, and you didn't work. So beauty was determined by being pale and pasty. I mean, we can go on forever about how standards of beauty change and how everybody's trapped in all these different standards because back then it wasn't about the tanning salon. It wasn't about being a tan goddess. It was about being pasty white. And so... She's comparing herself to the babes of Jerusalem. And she says, I'm like the tents of Kedar, which is the exact opposite of a city life. Because if you're in a tent, you're a nomad, which means you're baking in the Middle Eastern sun. And the tents are made of this coarse, dark material that have been beaten and dried and salted and scorched by the sun. In other words, she's always out in the sun, which means she's unattractive, according to the standards of that day. And she's always working, which means she's poor, so she's doubly unattractive. And she goes, well, you know, like the curtains of Solomon, which are the beautiful wall hangings that are on the inside. 
of the beautiful temple. She says to these folks, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. And then it turns into a Cinderella tale. Watch this. My, my mother's sons, this means her stepbrothers. So instead of stepsisters, it's stepbrothers. My mother's sons were angry with me. So kind of this is a really messed up family dynamic. They made me keeper of the vineyards, which is interesting because she's working in a garden. That's just very interesting. But her own vineyard, which means her own body, her own body image, her own physical appearance, I have not kept. So what's happening here? This is not about race. This is not about ethnicity. This is about deep insecurity. Specifically, being insecure about your body. She's basically, she's basically asking her man, am I pretty? Am I enough for you? The very first thing the Song of Songs says to us about intimacy is this. The very first thing it wants you to know about intimacy is this. The very primal, foundational, at the deepest bone level, DNA level of intimacy, the Song of Songs wants you to know about it is this. You are deeply insecure. Well, what are we so deeply insecure about? Well, just from this text, we got a couple of things. First, our bodies. Second, how we compare to others in this area or that area. For her, it was what? Her beauty, her body, her wealth, her work. The other thing that's, mess- that's brought up here about what we compare about, what we're insecure about, is our messy lives. For her, it was a messy family life. She had a messy family, dysfunctional family. And she wants her man to see her as she is. She wants her man to know her as she is. She wants her man to accept her as she is. She wants her man to love her as she is. She wants her man to stay with her forever and ever as she is. She's not putting an image of herself out there She's putting herself out there, insecure and weak. Don't miss what God's doing here. What he's doing here is he's acknowledging your deep insecurity. In a book in the Bible, he just takes it for granted, and he's basically saying to us, listen, in Genesis, he'd say, you're naked and ashamed. That's just the way you are. And so God knows that we're insecure, and he wants you to know this. I already know you're insecure. Let's just get that straight. I already know that. I want you to know that I know you're insecure, God is saying to you through this book. And I want you to know that you need to know you are too. Why do we need to know that we're insecure? Because there's no intimacy apart from knowing that. If we don't know that we're deeply insecure and weak, we will never find intimacy. 
uh, in their book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, social psychologists Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson describe how you can choke the life out of intimacy. Here's how you choke the life out of intimacy. They say the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, from these psychologists, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Well, wait a minute, because we always say, like, you know, our preferences, the way we see things, uh, our differences, uh, this is what's killing our relationship. They go, no, they're not the assassins of love. The assassin of love is self-justification, end quote. The inability, the refusal to see, know, acknowledge you're deeply insecure and weak. Self-justification puts up a, a wall. It blocks intimacy. Peter and Molly get married. This is a true story. Uh, their desires and expectations for marriage are slowly crushed over the years, just piece by piece peace dismantled and crushed and obliterated and annihilated and disappointment and discouragement and depressed. To the point Peter says to her, I can't take it anymore, Molly. It's too much for me. I can't handle us anymore. And he walks away and goes downstairs. And Molly finishes putting away the laundry uh, goes into the bathroom, turns on the shower, crawls onto the tiled floor, and cries the rest of the night. You know, if this was a movie or if this was a, a friend or a family member or even your own self, you know how this thing ends, right? But it didn't end that way. And Molly explains... I still wonder why the disappointments didn't doom our relationship. But now, eight years later, I think our real relationship began with them. Our relationship began with our disappointments. Our relationship began with our insecurities. Our relationship began with our failures. Our relationship began in the midst of our wreckedness. She goes on to say, in the aftermath, something new happened. What happened? Intimacy. Intimacy begins and ignites in insecurity and weakness. David Zoll explains it this way, real love is not something we decide in other words, you don't choose real love. You can't choose real love just like you can't choose joy. It's a stupid thing to say to people. Nobody can choose it. If we chose it, we'd all be incredibly happy. And we'd all be incredibly filled with fulfilling, flourishing, full, loving lives. But if we have to keep telling people to choose it, that's telling me something's not working. I don't know about you. 
So he says, real love is not something we decide. It's not something we choose, nor is it something we earn. In other words, you can't get real love if you're always trying to prove it. You can't get real love when you're trying to make yourself perfect so that you can get loved. You can't find real love that way. It just can't happen. Do you remember the monkey? You remember the orangutan when the orangutans were there? I think there's only one now. There used to be two, but I used to love it when the two were there because they would sit by the window facing you, and they each with those long arms would be reaching over to the other orangutan and picking away at them. You know, not picking themselves, they're picking at them. And you can't find real love when you're in a picking relationship. Intimacy can't happen when we're picking, picking, picking the stuff off each other all the time, perfecting each other, right? Uh, love is more than simply falling into it. So you don't even fall into love. It doesn't just all of a sudden open up and whoop, you fell into it. Here's the line. Love is something you fail into. Intimacy is something you fail into. So quick application, we need to acknowledge our insecurities and our weaknesses to God and to each other if we're ever going to be intimate. Husbands and wives, you need to admit your insecurities and your weaknesses to your spouse because the refusal to see, acknowledge, face, embrace, confess, and admit your insecurities and your weaknesses, your self-justification, that's what that is called, and intimacy can't mix. They just can't mix. Self-justification or refusing to admit your insecurities and weaknesses, your flaws, your brokenness, your wreckness, that refusal puts up a wall. It puts up a barrier. It blocks intimacy and it also blinds us. We actually start believing that we don't have these things, which is incredibly blinding. And then it hardens our hearts towards other people. We become pickers and we're constantly blaming and picking Admitting your insecurity and your weakness to the other, to your spouse, ignites intimacy. Intimacy is something we fail into. Rosari Butterfield turned a popular religious saying into a biblical one. Religion says this, um, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? We've all said that. You know, how are we supposed to deal with all the cultural stuff going on? How are we supposed to do it? Well, you know, we're going to love the sinner and we're going to hate the sin. So we're railing on the sin and we're trying to love the sinner. The gospel says, love the sinner, hate your own doggone sin. Their sin shouldn't even be an issue for you. The gospel says, love your own sin. I mean, hate your own sin. What is the mystery of intimacy? It's something we fail into. Second, look at verse 7. Tell me whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? This is incredible. She's taking the initiative again. This woman is a warrior. She's taking the initiative again. She's going after him again. She's trying to find him. She's trying to bridge any and all distances between her lover. If there's an emotional distance, she's bridging it. She's eliminating every distance. 
She's going to connect no matter what it takes. Emotionally, physically, she's going to connect. She's going to eliminate any differences. She's working hard to be near him emotionally and physically. That's what's happening in verse 7. Tell me, you who my soul loves. This is a soul intimacy. We just saw last week body intimacy. Now she's saying, my soul is bound to you. Emotionally, I'm bound to you, and I will bridge any gap between you and me. That's what verse 13 is about. If that's the soul, emotional intimacy, verse 13 is physical, sexual intimacy. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. She wants him as near as possible all night long. She's even taken risks to be with him emotionally and physically. Do you see this? To be near him emotionally and physically means she could be mistaken for, quote, one who veils herself. Do you know what that is? That's a prostitute. So not only did prostitutes follow the armies when they went out, but tr- prostitutes followed the shepherds when they went out to do business. And so she knows that if she goes out, because she's going to bridge any distance, she's going to be near him physically and emotionally. She is going to close it. She's going to connect. She's bound body and soul to him. She knows that when she does, she's going to be mistaken as a prostitute. And she says, I don't care. She works hard. She takes risks. When you put it all together, she's basically saying to her man, where are you? She's fighting for intimacy. What's the mystery of intimacy? You must fight for it. You must fight for it emotionally. You must fight for it physically because it does not come natural to us. If we were left to ourselves, in other words, if you had a a template, a default mode like a computer that you constantly went into your default screensaver, if a human being had a default mode, it would be to loneliness, not intimacy. It would naturally, we naturally will turn in on ourselves and become lonely. We will naturally look and surround ourselves with ourselves. That's just what we will do. Intimacy is something that pushes you outside of yourself. She's fighting for it. She's a warrior. Well, the intimacy warrior in our marriage is Nancy. No bones abound it. She fights for it. She really does. She's taught me how to fight for intimacy more than anybody. I've learned so much from her. But here's the point. Here's the application. It's incredibly subtle. It's in the text. It's hard to spot in the text, but you can find it. You'll see it. You'll see it when I say it. The point of this whole fighting for intimacy is this. It only takes one to change everything. Do you see that? She's fighting for it, and it changes everything. It only takes one spouse. It only takes one child. It only takes one sibling. It only takes one worker. It only takes one teammate. It only takes one friend. It only takes one church leader to admit insecurity and weakness, and strangely, everyone else does. It only takes one spouse. I used the the wife, the first service, I had a bunch of attaboys from the men, so I'm going to flip it around this service. It only takes the husband to kiss 
and be warm and affectionate and kind and self-giving to his wife. And strangely, she does back. It only takes a wife to affirm her husband, communicate to her husband, pursue her husband. And strangely, he does the same. It only takes one spouse to fight for intimacy. Strangely, the other one will too. What's the mystery of intimacy? It's something we fail into, and it's something we must fight for. Lastly, verse 8 and 9. Oh, this is awesome. If you have the ESV, you have these little titles, she, others, she, he. He finally speaks. We finally meet this dude. Aren't you glad to meet this dude? I'm finally, who is this dude? You know, like, she's awesome. Who's he? Who's he going to be, right? Verse 8 and 9, he finally speaks. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, meant don't do that one. <laughs> it's never good to compare your wife or your girlfriend to a horse. Just don't, don't do that. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with string jewels. There has to be an original historical meaning for that, doesn't there? <laughs> what is that? All right, don't miss what he's doing. Do you see what he's doing? He's addressing both of her concerns, both of her insecurities, both of her weaknesses, both of her anxieties. She is insecurely asking, am I pretty? Am I enough? And he says, you are the most beautiful woman on the planet to me. Man, you're enough for me. This is not a metaphor like, okay, let's stack up all the babes of the world out there. And he's going to say, eh, you're the most beautiful. That's not what this is about. Because, again, we can go on and on about the different standards of beauty and how they change in culture. I mean, I just read the other day in one of, the, one of these things I was reading where some celebrity woman that if we were to mention her name, you'd be like, oh my word, she's one of the most beautiful ladies in the world. And she refuses to go out in public right now. She's been so airbrushed and so perfected that she doesn't want anyone to see how imperfect she is. She thinks she's ugly. This is about her wanting her man to think she's beautiful. She doesn't care what other dudes think of her. She's not out for the attention of other boys, other men. She only has eyes for one, and she cares. What do you think? And he says, you're the most beautiful woman on the planet to me, honey. You are more than enough for me. And he means it. Secondly, she asks, do you see this? Where are you? Where are you? Are you going to fight for us like I'm fighting? Are you going to fight emotionally and physically to bridge all distance between us? Are you going to fight for us? And he says, here I am. I will fight for you. I'm going to speak to married people just for a moment. Everybody else can listen in because it still applies. But I'm going to do this not because I've got it together in this area, but because I need to get it together in this area. Husbands, wives, I want you to notice how his words speak her back to life again. Do you see that? 
He literally speaks her back to life. He addresses her anxieties. He addresses her insecurities. He addresses her weaknesses with life. Our words, married folks, do not just convey information. Our words get things done. Our words act. Our words do. Our words accomplish. Our words perform. Our words do wonders. Because we are worded people. Because when God made human beings and he made this world, he spoke us into being. So the whole world has down in its bones and its DNA, it's all worded. It's all held together by this invisible thing called the word of God. And so you and I are held together. Human beings are held together. All creation is held together by words. So sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hear me. Bull stuff. Bull. It's actually, my words will break me. Our words will either give life or give death to your spouse. Married people, your words will either give life or give death. Your words will either ignite intimacy or ignite loneliness. Your words will either heal or make sick. Your words will either shape insecurity, the person that you're married to, or shatter them with insecurity. Our words will either love and accept them to life or it will accuse and condemn to death. Our words matter. So what is the mystery of intimacy? You fail into it. And I forget the second one. What is the second one? Anybody remember? Oh, what is it? Fight for it. Catherine, thank you. Adina, thank you. The other is we need life-giving words. It's something that needs life-giving words. So what's the mystery of intimacy? We just saw the three. Here I just want to end this way. It's something we fail into because Jesus loves you, an insecure, weak sinner. It's just as basic as that. Right? Jesus is, he says, I, I didn't come for the healthy people. I didn't come for the beautiful people. I didn't come for the lovely people. I came for the unlovely. I came for the ugly. I came for the shattered. I came for the insecure. I came for sinners. Jesus loves sinners. He's intimate with the broken and fallen and messed up. You fail into a relationship with him. You don't earn it. And it's strangely, something happens, though. You know what happens? His love on our unloveliness begins to make us lovely. It's his love that makes us lovely, not we start making ourselves lovely. Second, something we must fight for. Jesus fought for you. That's why you fight for it in your marriage. That's why you fight for it at church. That's why you fight for it in a community. That's why you fight for it. Because Jesus fought for it. He refused to be separated from you. He refused to be at distant from you. So much so that he went to the cross, the ultimate place of loneliness. He became the ultimate lonely human being so you never would. He became the ultimate distant one so you never would. 
And to me, it's something that needs life-giving words. Well, because of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, he says to you, you now are so beautiful to me. Perfect. You're enough. And you are now bound to me like in union with me, married to me forever and ever and ever. I bridged every distance to get you to be near me. The mystery, the mystery of intimacy. Intimacy.